You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. The January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol gripped the nation and the world, and its impact is going to be with us for a long time to come, not only in the impeachment trial that begins on February 8th uh, in the U.S. Senate, uh, but its political impact uh, and its uh, impact on American society. Uh, somewhat less uh, well-remarked uh, internationally was a, a, a demonstration in front of the seat of the German parliament, the Reichstag building in central Berlin, in August of 2020. Um, a mob uh, gathered and tried to force its way into Uh, the seat of, of the German legislature. Now, we're going to talk uh, today about the, the global um, far-right problem, um, the impact on the United States and on Germany, and, and what connections and lessons we may draw from it. We are really delighted to have with us as a guest today, Cynthia Miller Idris, who is a professor uh, at the School of Public Affairs and Education uh, at American University. She is the head of the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab and one of the nation's leading experts uh, on this topic. She is also on the International Advisory Board of the Center for Research on Extremism in Oslo uh, and has spent decades uh, researching radical and extreme youth culture in Europe and the United States. She's the author of a recent book called Hate in the Homeland, The New Spaces and Places of Far-Right Extremism, Uh, and in particular interest for us here at AICGS, is, she is also the author of a 2018 book called The Extreme Gone Mainstream, Commercialization and Far-Right Youth Culture in Germany. By the way, Cynthia has been an AICGS research fellow, um, and we are really delighted to have her with us today. And I'm joined by my colleague, senior fellow, Eric Langenbacher, who directs our uh, program on society, culture, and politics. So uh, Dr. Miller Idris, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, to lead off, I, I'd just like to hear, um, you know, how much of a similarity do you see in the uh, the the mob uh, gathering in the Reichstag in August and their attempts to press into the Reichstag building um, and the January 6th events here in the Capitol? Well, I think it's a really good question. I, there were really obviously some important differences. The scale was much different. The level of violence um, was different. And also ultimately the success of the US attack as it were in breaching the Capitol and, and having so many people get into the building. Um, Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there are really striking similarities um, that in many ways make the August attack uh, at, the, at the Reichstag seem a little bit like a practice run of sorts if you see this as a global uh, kind of phenomenon in, this, in the sense of an earlier attempt to have, have done it. Um, one of the things that's really similar is that the, the group of people, <clears throat> um, the 40,000 protesters in, in Berlin and the and the large numbers, thousands of protesters in the States were really brought together in large part mobilized through conspiracy theories and misinformation. Um, but the, those who then stormed the parliament and the Capitol uh, also included a kind of 
deeper committed group of, of right-wing extremists on the more militant side. And so you have in both cases kind of a militant group of people even using the spon more spontaneous mob uh, or rioting as a potential backdrop to, to um, pursue extremist action and violence. And so, um, you know, as I've been saying about January 6th, both the spontaneous rioters and the more planned militant extremists are equally criminally liable for what happened that day. And, and I think we'll see that in the prosecutions, but it does change a little bit the trajectory of what we think of about risk and, and, um, and the threat landscape moving forward. So I think there were very strong similarities um, and, uh, and really a remarkable um, thwarting of it by just a very small number of police officers in the German case um, suggests that it could have been, it could have been worse. So um, I'd also like to thank you for joining us today. Um, going off of that, um, obviously there are you know several hundred, several thousand people who are criminally culpable for these two um, these two horrendous events. But um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the kind of like deeper roots of this sentiment in the populations of the two countries. Um, you know, oftentimes. Well, it, it, as, as, as you know better than probably anybody else, it, it can be difficult to measure and to quantify the extent of support for these movements or right-wing thinking more generally. So oftentimes we'll look at the visible manifestations, support for various right populist or right radical parties. And in Germany, that is increasingly these days the alternative for Germany, which is polling at nine to 11%. Um, according to most of the uh, polling that I've seen. And then the United States is a little different, obviously with a different electoral system and whatnot. But um, I think most people would say that uh, uh, Trump's hardcore support um, or the hardcore supporters of Trumpism are between 25 and maybe 33% of the population. So, you know, these are, 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 are pretty alarming figures in my opinion, but, but how rooted do you think these sentiments actually are? How much do they resonate with the, the, the average Janes and Joes in both countries? Well, I think part of what, uh, you know, what we have to parse out in answering that question is what we mean by the far right. And so, um, you know, the far right itself is a spectrum of, of beliefs and ideologies and groups that include both the white supremacist fringe um, and the anti-government fringe, and as well as some other um, kind of um, male supremacist involuntary celibate groups and single issue kinds of extremist groups around anti-abortion, for example, or other things like that. Um, in Germany, it's a little easier because there's one that the term is right-wing extremism that kind of encompasses all of that uh, as acts against the constitution. And in fact, those individuals who are right-wing extremists are counted literally. So I can tell you that the most recent Verfassungsschutzbericht um, and the, the report of the Office of the Protection of the Constitution says that there are 32,080 um, right-wing extremists. I mean, a really pretty precise number uh, counted last year, about 13,000 of whom are deemed um, ready to be violent, gewaltbereit. And so you know, that we can never, we have nothing like that in the States in the sense of being able to know with any kind of precision what these numbers look like. Um, what we do know is that the number of people who are supporters of those ideologies, whether that's through voting for parties um, or uh, being mobilized to come out into the streets for something like a Pegida march, these patriotic uh, 
so-called you know patriotic Europeans against the Islamification of the Occident with those Pegida marches, or uh, now over QAnon and other kinds of conspiracy theory-oriented groups, is much larger than that. Um, in the states, we've had several different kinds of polls now that have come out since the January sixth attack that indicate you know not insignificant numbers of people that support what happened at the Capitol. I think the most recent poll I've seen is around eight percent. Um, and so we have a reasonably high percentage of people who offer some kind of support or believe that that was a legitimate thing to do. The vast majority of whom I would argue are almost certainly not to, likely to be card carrying members of, of far right extremist groups, whether those are militias or white supremacist extremist groups. So I think there are a couple of different dimensions to it when we think about what the scale and scope is. Um, as I track in my most recent book, we know on the white supremacist side, there are probably somewhere between 75,000 and 100,000 individuals in the US who, who are members of groups um, that are white supremacist extremist in nature. Um, but, and then that doesn't even include the, the anti-government militia groups, which also have tens of thousands and then, uh, or perhaps more now, um, but, but again, doesn't include a much, potentially much larger number of people who are kind of self-radicalizing online um, and mobilizing through online communities into action that is different from being a member of a group that's easily monitored. So I think part of what we're seeing here is a transition in what far-right extremism kind of looks like, um, both nationally and globally. And uh, as I've been arguing recently, that shows also that, that the kind of surveillance and monitoring approach has real limitations um, because we just can't, unless you're gonna surveil and monitor the whole population, which I don't think anybody wants, uh, we can't um, we can't pursue a kind of infiltration of group strategy as a way of of attacking the the core root of a problem if it's if it's really more rooted in misinformation and propaganda. Oh my gosh, I have so many questions uh, just <laughs> arising from this, but um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the online radicalization that you just mentioned, um, and in particular the role of conspiracy theories um, in in all of this. I mean, the, the, the left has not been immune to conspiracy theories, but it seems that in recent years, it's really the right and the extreme right that has been consumed by conspiracy theories like QAnon and, um, and others. And of course, one of the things that, that struck me about the protest in Berlin was all the Q banners that one saw, which of course was also the case, uh, during the Capitol riot. So, um, you know, there's been some reporting that conspiracy theories have um, an especial resonance, particularly in the United States and in Germany, that these two countries kind of stick out compared to, I don't know, France or Britain in terms of the degree to which people are infected by these, um, by these theories. Uh, do you agree that these two societies are more susceptible to conspiracy thinking? And um, if so, why? Well, the U.S. for sure has a history of uh, of, of being um, susceptible. Americans really are susceptible to conspiracy theories. There's some really interesting evidence of the numbers of people who believe in at least one conspiracy theory is relatively high um, and has been. And there, it's a long history of the U.S. Of, of believing that. On the German side, I'm not as sure. I just don't know the literature on conspiracy theory beliefs, but it wouldn't surprise me based on what I've seen uh, around QAnon support if that weren't uh, if that weren't also true. I think we're, but we are seeing QAnon now in 75 plus countries. I think. I mean, it's it is a spread. There seems to be some susceptibility to it um, in other kinds of places. You know, the the key thing about conspiracy theories. I mean, conspiracy theories is there. 
there are all kinds of them, right? There's a conspiracy theory that all birds are drones, right? I mean, they're not necessarily political, right? That this is, um, they're just lizard people. I mean, they're bizarre set, you know, bizarre conspiracy theories that are out there that, that don't necessarily map neatly onto political ideologies. But what, one of the things that's kind of at their core, no matter what they say, is the idea of orchestration. And that kind of orchestration by elites, by some organized cabal, often an anti-Semitic um, underpinning there, is, uh, is really at the root of it. And because of that anti-Semitic nature and the anti-elite nature of the, of the conspiracy theory, the idea that there's orchestration, that it's nefarious, bad actors, that there's an existential threat, um, uh, all of that kind of, whether that's a great replacement or white genocide conspiracy theory on the white supremacist extremist fringe, or a conspiracy theory about an organized cabal of elites or running a child trafficking ring. Um, these are, you know, they call on people to action, to act heroically with meaning and purpose uh, to take action, almost to feel compelled to take action. Um, and, and, and I think we saw the same thing with the mass sort of disinformation and conspiracies around the election and this idea of the stop the steal, that um, it really were, that what you had here were people who felt they were the ones being patriotic. These were courageous revolutionary acts um, that they were compelled to do to save democracy from traitors and tyrannical government. Um, and so the framing of it is, is, you can see very much how people feel that they are the ones thwarting an existential threat um, and that they don't, it's different than the kind of someone undertaking an, another type of criminal act because they really believe that they're the ones being heroic. If I could jump in there, and this yeah. is uh, especially the, the the spread, I think, of, of uh, QAnon um, uh, to Germany has been uh, striking um, because you don't see the same kind of antecedents uh, there that that you might uh, that, that that exist in the U.S. Um, but I'm interested in the question of cross fertilization um, because the, this this permeability of our uh, what used to be national conspiracy theories um, is an interesting development. It also connects, I think, to the, the international right-wing extremist links. If you look at the Christchurch um, uh, attack, for example, or the attacks um, in particular in Halle um, in <laughs> Eastern Germany, the uh, attempted attack on a synagogue um, and uh, shooting um, outside of it, uh, where there were clear international links of the perpetrator, including, you know, uh, exposure to English language, uh, radicalizing material. Um, I'd be interested to hear your comment on on that. But in, more particularly, is there any evidence you've seen that the people who attacked the Capitol on January sixth had, in any sort of tactical way, tried to learn lessons from the August attack on the Reichstag building? We haven't. I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen the any evidence um, coming out that there has been. You know, I, I think that will un, unfold as the weeks and months go by, and we learn more about the actors um, and what was happening in terms of the planning and the and and any kind of dialogue going on in advance. What we do know is that um, one of the effects of kind of social media platforms and and even these alternative platforms for communication is that there is a lot of cross-national collaboration and conversation and sharing of tactical strategies, even bomb-making plans, um, uh, you know, the, obviously the live streaming of attacks and manifestos that get circulated globally, but even the, on the tactical planning side, techniques, um, strategies, 
are regularly shared globally on these kinds of um, extremist fora and, and chat rooms and spaces. So um, it's not inconceivable. I just haven't seen ev evidence yet that there was direct learning, but the parallels are so um, similar and, and not just from the um, German attack, but also from state capital attacks, you know, and, and other kinds of state that the symbolic nature of these capital buildings and parliament buildings um, is, has been a clear goal, along with the political assassination that we had in Germany last year, the assassination of Joe Cox in the UK, the attempted, um, you know, kidnapping of the Michigan and, and Virginia governors. I mean, we even the attack on this judge's family in New Jersey, um, you know, uh, by a different element of, on the extremist spectrum. But, you know, I think what you have there are a rising global um, evidence of targeted political violence um, in symbolic ways that is that is beyond the kinds of mobilization we'd seen, a different level of different kind of mobilization than just, and I say just, you know, not to minimize it, but then the targeting of, um, of religious or ethnic minority groups that we had been seeing um, for, for several years prior to that. So it's, I think there are different kinds of mobilization across the far right uh, extreme happening in terms of violence. And the QAnon, um, conspiracy part of that, I think, is also very, very tied to the pandemic conditions. And I think that, you know, the roots were there prior to that, but we've really seen the growth take off over the last 10 months or so, along with the growth in the anti-government fringe. And so, you know, very much tied to these ideas of resistance to shelter in place orders, but obviously also to the kind of anxiety of the pandemic in terms of feeling out of control and um, being people being much more vulnerable both to online radicalization in general because they're spending so much time online, but also specifically to these narratives about how to engage with meaning and purpose. Um, so one of the aspects of the attack uh, here in Washington, D.C. Um, was uh, the fact that former military and maybe other um, folks involved with various security services were involved with the attack. Uh, in the German context, there have been some horrifying reports about the infiltration of the police, the special forces in the um, Bundeswehr um, by these kind of like right extremist elements. So um, how concerning uh, are these reports or are, are these developments? And is that perhaps one of the reasons for the ineffectual response thus far? I mean, I think that, you know, in the German context, uh, there often has been criticism of the security services for being blind in the right eye, as people yeah. put it. Do you think that that is a, a, a problem that, that needs to immediately be addressed? It's absolutely a problem that needs to immediately be addressed in the U.S. I mean, the Germ Germany's already addressing it, but I think after years of repeated scandals um, that had really, you know, dating at least three or four years uh, back where there were sort of case after case, anecdote after anecdote of uh, bubbling up of problems, whether those were kind of racist chat rooms or the case of a soldier trying to actually plant a false flag attack. Um, you know, so there, there were there have been scandals um, and that led Germany to finally undertake systematic investigations that did, you know, I mean, it's, it's with, you know, it's still a relatively small percentage, like something like 1% or less of all active duty troops and law enforcement. I mean, we don't have to think it's, you know, some huge percentage, but as I think that it was the Minister of Defense said, you know, every case is a scandal. 
Um, because when you're dealing with people who are trained and charged with safeguarding the welfare of populations and have military training and, and weapons access, um, it's a different level. You should expect the standards to be even higher than, uh, than, than the rest of the population. And you want that to be zero, um, not, you know, not even a small percentage. So I think what we have in the States is the same kinds of anecdote after anecdote, scandal after scandal, alarm bells being raised, both on the law enforcement side and the military in terms of active duty, and certainly as well on the veteran side, where we've really had uh, case after case of veterans um, being engaged in the violence, um, including at the uh, including the Capitol attack, where the where it is disproportionate, um, and uh, and I think that that the that we've crossed a line now in the states where there's going to have to be action, and uh, the question I think is whether that action is publicly transparent um, and how accountable that that action is to the public. I do think that the uh, the Pentagon and military and law enforcement will now have to start at least asking the questions and, and starting to collect the data. I still don't have a sense of whether that will mean that we, as the public, actually learn uh, enough about it or what those consequences look like. Um, and then my final question uh, has to do with policy responses. And uh, I'd like all of our listeners to know that uh, you have just published a really fascinating article uh, in f um, foreign uh, policy. Um, where you, you talk about some of these uh, responses. Um, in particular, uh, you discuss the uh, German government's response, but also some of the efforts that have been made by a diverse array of countries like New Zealand uh, and Norway. But um, maybe just speaking from your uh, knowledge of the German case, um, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you could tell us a few more details about what uh, the government is trying to do, uh, your assessment of some of these measures and how maybe there are some lessons for American yeah. authorities. So thanks for pointing out that article, which is in uh, Foreign Affairs uh, published uh, this week, the first week of, of February. And uh, I should note with a co-author in Germany, Daniel Köhler, who, who runs the German Institute for Radicalization and Deradicalization Studies and is a longtime collaborator and friend uh, with real expertise in this area. And we wrote about, um, essentially Germany's response three months after their attack on the parliament, obviously with much longer planning in place. I mean, uh, had been in development for some time, but I think with some urgency then after that, um, very uh, shocking kind of for symbolic reasons, as well as um, in terms of the reality of that mobilization, uh, the way that that attack I think affected the country. Um, and so they, the Germany's response was to release really a sweeping set of measures, 89 specific measures with uh, over a billion euro in investment just over the next three years. I think another 150 million euro has been committed from the next budget cycle. Uh, and uh, those measures do include some traditional security and law enforcement um, counterterrorism type measures. It includes uh, more public accountability for what is already a dedicated military agency tasked with um, uh, rooting out extremism in the military, already a unique sort of situation that Germany has to have that dedicated military agency. But now that agency has to be more publicly accountable um, to reporting what, what has happened. Uh, and there's some other measures that are a little bit more traditional in terms of security law enforcement approaches, but the vast majority of them are not uh, in that category of attacking extremism from by, by right, really trying to kind of 
surveil and monitor it out of existence. Um, it is, it is in fact a set of measures that combines, I think it's called something like 89 measures to combat racism and right-wing extremism and really approaches this as a problem of, um, of needing to not only address the extremist fringe, but to improve all of society's uh, uh, relationship with an increasingly diverse society, um, how to build an inclusive and diverse society and how to include more anti-racist approaches in the combating of, of extremists and the extremist fringe. So it's really quite remarkable. A lot of research uh, funding, a lot of funding for NGOs and pilot projects um, and, uh, and a much more diverse array of agencies involved. So it's not just the kind of national security approach, but one that integrates health and education and theater and the arts and other kinds of ways of doing it. So it's a more holistic, um, approach to kind of understanding this is something that needs uh, to address the public educational needs um, through civic education, through combating of racism, and not just dealing with the outcome of, of the failures to do that by, um, by kind of creating more carceral punishments or ways of tools to, um, to sort of suppress uh, extremism once it happens. You know, the other thing that I, I, I noticed uh, from the German measures is that they're also going to um, target youth and yes. kind of like the education or socialization of youth. So it really does strike me at least that they're taking both a kind of like short term, here are immediate measures that we need to take in terms of surveillance and research and, and actual measures, but they're also thinking about the medium and the long term uh, so that yeah. uh, hopefully this problem can um, uh, be dealt with once and for all. So, um, yeah. but getting back to the United States for a sec, so, you know, what are some of the takeaways that uh, the Biden administration or that, you know, state governors, uh, state legislatures uh, could take to to um, to deal with this this challenge? Yeah, I think this is, um, you know, I think for mayors, for governors, for um, school district leaders, for, um, you know, at every local level and state level, as well as for the Biden administration, I think the lesson here is that, um, you know, we do need accountability. And of course, we need law enforcement solutions here, but it's always going to be a band-aid that can never fully um, eradicate or address the problem, particularly when we're dealing with kind of misinformation and disinformation, conspiracy theories at such scale um, that, you know, you have to be perfect um, at the law enforcement end of it to prevent violence from happening. And, and the larger the pool of people are who are mobilized, the harder it gets to, to be perfect at the end of trying to prevent and interrupt the violence. Um, and so just from a violence prevention standpoint alone, I think it's a much more efficient thing to do to invest in the prevention and intervention side um, to improve media literacy, to help people understand what propaganda looks like, how scapegoating works, why they might be susceptible. You know, and all the ways that we have invested as countries in the global north in trying to help fragile democracies um, ward off kind of manipulation of elections and propaganda, but also heal from things like civil war or, or uh, neighboring genocides in places like Burundi um, when Rwanda descended into genocide and, you know, and, and successfully was able to stave that off with a lot of foreign intervention support for things like multi-ethnic journalist teams um, from Hutus and Tutsis that built trust 
uh, in the reporting so that people understood it wasn't biased um, and that the media couldn't be used to call, uh, to, to, to rile up more misinformation and, and propaganda. So there are strategies, I guess, globally, I think that matter not just from Germany, but from other places that uh, countries like Germany and the US have invested in to help, um, to help strengthen democracies. And in a way it's, it's the, the fallacy of thinking of ourselves as a, as a democracy that can't be fragile um, I think is one that we have to get over because what we've seen here is that, you know, we do have components of our own populations and our own democracies that are just as susceptible to the kinds of misinformation and manipulation um, that, that we have seen happen um, to great terrible effect in other places. So I think the lesson here is it needs to be, you know, all the agencies, right, health and human services, child and family services, um, you know, uh, uh, education, mental health professionals, um, as well as law enforcement and security and intelligence services. And so it can't be just a sort of split solution. It has to be something that tackles it on multiple levels at the same time. Well, uh, that's actually a, a very hopeful kind of message to, to kind of end on. I wish I could share uh, the same sense of hope uh, that you do for the United States, but um, I'm a little bit more pessimistic right now because one of the yeah. differences that I see is first of all, um, basically the, the entire German political spectrum supports these measures, except, well, well, I mean, we'll see about the AFD, but I think they've been very marginalized when it comes to, uh, to this particular issue. So there is multi-partisan buy-in for these measures. There, I, I also see a kind of structural way of thinking in, in Germany, that it's not just a specific kind of um, instance, but there are structural factors behind um, uh, well, what led these people to um, act in a certain way or to believe certain things. I'm not sure that I see the same um, multi-partisan response in the United States. And, and if there's one thing that Americans have never been good at is kind of structural thinking, right? It's always about yeah. individual choice. And when I hear one of the two parties talk about, well, of course the you know, individual perpetrators will be held to account, but you know, it was their choice. Right. right, they, right there right, seems right. to be an inability to think in these necessary structural terms to truly deal with the issue. But that's just, you know, my yeah. Opinion. I mean, I think you know, I am an optimist basically by nature, and so I'm. Despite the fact that most of the time my analysis is sort of doom and gloom, I do find a lot of hope in the solutions offered by other countries. You know, um, I often lean into Germany because I spent so many years working there and studying it. But I think there are a lot of other places too that have shown. There are other ways to do this than the approach the US has been taking and is likely to continue to take, I think, without a real push to do something different. Um, and I think that, you know, the biggest takeaway I feel like in the difference between the political culture in Germany that supports this kind of approach in the US is that Germany and other countries who take this approach, I think, see extremism. Um, the challenging of extremism as embedded within the charge to protect democracy itself. And, you know, and so foregrounding that of how do you strengthen democracy um, as the priority, whether that's through media literacy or through, you know, that, that, that combating right-wing extremism is a part of that charge. And uh, so that gives a more holistic starting point for it. And it doesn't mean it's perfect, right? There are plenty of flaws and plenty of things that have gone wrong and plenty of things that have been missed but it is a different approach than thinking of it as just a tumor that has to be cut out of society. Um, you know, it's, it's not just can't be isolated and, and removed. Um, there is a kind of contagion effect to it that we've seen happen. And, and so I think we have to ward it off as, 
in a more inoculative way if you use the public health method, uh, you know, kind of metaphor to think about how do you strengthen the whole to build more resilience against it. Well, this is clearly a topic that is going to remain on the agenda um, uh, in the United States, in Germany, uh, and elsewhere. So we've been really grateful to you, Professor Cynthia uh, Miller-Idris, uh, for, for joining us today and, uh, and helping us with your perspective on the uh, global far-right uh, extremism problem. Um, and perhaps we'll find an opportunity to do this again sometime, but we want to uh, really express our appreciation for your contributions today. Um, and also to direct people once more to the uh, article in Foreign Affairs by Cynthia Miller-Idris and Daniel Kohler, um, appeared just this week, um, and it's a great, a great read. So thanks for being with us. Thank you. And as I always say, I mean, as much as I'd love to talk to you again, maybe we all hope that this expertise becomes less relevant in the years <laughs> to come and uh, returns to what I used to think of as subcultural fringe uh, <laughs> studies. And so it's rather than mainstream political interest, um, but, uh, but to the extent that it's, that it's remains of interest, I'm always happy to come back. And thank you for having me. Okay. And we will look forward to having all of you uh, listeners back with us uh, on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.